0: Welcome to The Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, The Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
1: Welcome to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. Uh, my guest this hour is Rachel Richards. Uh, she's also known as The Money Honey. She's done several books, one called Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement. Welcome to The Money Answer Show, Rachel.
2: Hey, Jordan. Thanks for having me.
1: So tell us briefly your story, and we're going to get into it in more detail, about how you got to where you are today.
2: Yes, for sure. So I'm a lot of things. I'm a former financial advisor, best-selling author, real estate investor, and what people find the most intriguing about me is that I was able to retire at the age of 27, and I'm now living off over $15,000 per month in passive income. So that's my high-level bio. So
1: basically, it's a combination of getting the passive income going, but also Keeping expenses under control its kind of a combination of the two. Is that your strategy?
2: Yeah, for sure. I wouldn't have been able to do it so fast without one or the other. So I've always been responsible and frugal with the money. And then in 2017, my husband and I started building passive income. So we bought our first rental property that year. And then later that year, I launched my first best best-selling book, Money, Honey. So those were our first two passive income streams, rental income and royalty income. And we focused on growing those as much as we possibly could over the next few years.
1: So let's talk about the rental income. So the market has changed dramatically because of COVID. People are leaving central cities and going to the suburbs in many cases. How has that affected the rental market? And does that affect where you think you should be getting into rentals and other people should be uh, buying uh, rental properties?
2: Yeah, so I'm glad you asked because... You're, if you invest in real estate, you probably will lose money at some point. It, it, that just goes for any investment that you make. There is a risk of loss. With our rental income, we have about 38 doors in Louisville, Kentucky. And in a normal month, we were making anywhere from eight to 10 grand a month in profit. But if you look back to April 2020, the first month that things got really bad in the US from the coronavirus, we only made $1,000 that month. So that was an enormous decrease in our profits, like a 90% decrease in our profits. Now, the only reason I wasn't panicking, though, is because I had other passive income streams keeping us afloat. So it wasn't a huge deal. If if the worst case scenario for us was that we broke even for a few months, I was fine with that. So we weathered that storm pretty well. We, you know, immediately our rents started going back up. We helped our tenants find rental assistance. Um... We we did hold off on filling vacancies for a while just because we didn't want to put anyone at risk. But then once we converted to doing virtual showings, everything picked up back up very quickly. Now, all that said, I, I don't want to discourage anybody from getting invested in real estate. But I do think you have to do your due diligence as a buyer and really run worst case scenarios. So if you're looking at a rental property let's say it's a single family home. If your tenant is unable to pay for a few months or you have to evict them or you have someone that's refusing to pay, are you going to be able to carry those costs by yourself? If not, that's going to be a pretty risky investment for you. And that's another reason I do like to invest in multifamily because I have multiple tenants. And that way, if one tenant is having trouble paying, I still have other tenants that are paying all of their rent money. So that's kind of my thoughts on how it's impacted us and how I think other people can prepare.
1: So how is it going to change valuations of rental properties, people buying, with this, not only the COVID, but the move out of the cities into the suburbs? Is that inflating suburb prices and depressing city prices?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about supply and demand. Um, with multifamily real estate, the price is based on how much income it can produce. It's an income-producing asset. It's a cash-flowing asset. So normally the prices are based more on that. So if you're seeing something like a pandemic where all of a sudden a lot of your are, tenants are having tr- problems paying rent, that definitely can impact the value of your property. And if you go to sell it, it can be harder to get as much money as you would hope out of it. So it really depends on supply and demand. It can be different anywhere. It can be different in cities, suburbs, different areas in the U.S., but if you can keep track of the trends and see where people are going and maybe where there's not enough supply in the market, that's typically a good place to invest.
1: So you have them all in one place. Do you recommend doing that near where you live or you think you should diversify across the country when you're buying rental properties?
2: It depends. I definitely think geographical diversification is a good thing. And it's not something I would have thought about too much before the pandemic, but because of these eviction bans right now, it's really hard for us in Kentucky. We Our hands are pretty tied, we can't do much. And if our rental properties were all, all over the US or maybe we had some in a more flexible state, we might've been able to have more control over what we can and cannot do with non-paying tenants. So I definitely think it's always a good idea. You know, Some people are hesitant to invest out of state and I totally get that fear. Um, our rentals are in Louisville, Kentucky and my husband and I just moved to Colorado in 2020. So it was scary thinking we're going to be all the way across the country from our rentals. But what we've realized is it's actually a lot easier to manage because when we were in Kentucky, we would go down to our rental properties once or twice a week when something came up or a tenant had an emergency. And now we're forced to outsource everything. So in that way, being a long distance landlord can be a little bit easier.
1: Do so you get a management company to handle it for you?
2: We have, I actually have a horror story I can share, but we've we've had a property manager before. Right now, we're self-managing, and we have a family member in town that's helping us for anything we need someone we trust on site for.
1: Tell us your, your horror story about property managers.
2: Yeah, it's a fun one, Jordan. So um, when when my husband and I got to about 26 units that we were self-managing, We just needed to hire help because we were both still working full time. I was writing my books in the evenings and we just didn't have the capacity. So it was time to hire a property manager. Now, I being my frugal self, I was trying to figure out a way I could make this not a huge cost for us. So there was this couple that had been working for us doing things like maintenance and cleaning the common areas and some landscaping. It was a husband and wife. They were very hardworking. They worked harder than anyone I knew and they always went above and beyond. So our thought was, well, why don't we make them employees of our company? We can save a little bit of money this way if we make them our property managers, and we can be more hands-on with how they're doing things. So that was our thought, and that's basically the mistake we made, because it started out great. They were working very hard, but then things started slipping through the cracks, and about six months in, my husband went to pick up the rent from one of our on-site lockboxes, and he realized there was a lot of rent missing. It was not just the tenant. It wasn't just a tenant paying late. It was a significant chunk. So we're calling our property managers. They're MIA. Uh, we never heard from them again. And it turns wow. out they stole $6,000 in rent money from us that weekend.
1: It's just a so, basically, basically, huh? know?
2: Yeah, it was an enormous wake-up call, an enormous violation of trust. I mean, definitely not a fun time. I can laugh about it now. But in hindsight, it's almost embarrassing because I feel we were so naive to trust them the way that we did Um, And the moral of the story is that this isn't the place to be cheap. This isn't the place to cut corners. If -hmm. you're going to hire a property management company, you need to hire someone that's licensed, bonded, insured, and reputable. Because if one of their employees had done that to us, they would have been liable for the damages, not us.
1: And you had no recourse. You could go find them, but they disappeared on you, basically.
2: Right. They disappeared. We have um, warrants out and everything, but (laughs) so far, nothing. (laughs) They're good at hiding. (laughs)
1: Wow. Okay, so the the moral of that story is to hire a legitimate property management firm, it's worth it to pay a lecture, right?
2: Right, because sometimes if you try to be too cheap, it'll end up costing you even more in the long run, which is exactly what happened to us.
1: Has that happened in other places in real estate where you were too cheap and learned your lesson?
2: Um... Not in the same way. I mean, we've definitely made other mistakes and we've learned our lessons hiring other people, Um, like with contractors. That's another hard one. And I think the best thing you can do with hiring a contractor is get at least three or four or five quotes from different contractors and really interview them, really check their references, make sure they're legit. And again, that they're insured, licensed, independent contractors. Mm -hmm. And if if you can screen them thoroughly on the front side, you'll be fine in most cases
1: who is good and who is not good to take on rental real estate as a form of passive income it's not for everybody who is it appropriate for and who should stay away from it
2: you're right it's definitely not for everybody it depends on how much time you have to invest and how much money you have to invest so somebody And I used to count myself out of investing in real estate, you know, when I was really young, because I didn't have much money. There are ways around that now where you can get invested without a ton of money, you can wholesale, you can house hack, there's some creative things you can do. But for for traditionally investing, where you need to come up with a 20 to 25% down payment, that will certainly be a constraint on a lot of people. The other thing is the time constraint. So I always tell people, if you want rental income to be passive, you have to hire a property manager because chances are none of us want to quit our jobs to, to become a full-time landlord. So even if you plan on starting out self-managing like we did, which I think is a fantastic way to learn, you need to build in the expense of having a property manager so that you always have that option in the future. But somebody that's starting out, you, you really want to understand how much time do you have to invest? Can you afford a property manager right off the bat? And are you willing to deal with the hassle of managing maintenance and managing the tenants and doing all of the work that goes into a rental property? So that's that's what you would want to think about.
1: What are some of the tax breaks that you get for being a landlord?
2: Being a landlord and owning property, you get all sorts of tax benefits. And I love rental property investing because there are so many financial benefits. Number one, you have equity buildup. So your tenants are paying your mortgage for you over time, which means that after 30 years, you'll own a property free and clear not having only paid the down payment. So that's amazing. Number two, you have the cash flow or the passive income. Number three, you have the tax benefits, as you mentioned, and depreciation is a huge one for rental property investors. And then number four, I see this more as a bonus because it doesn't always happen, but you can also potentially benefit from appreciation and the value of the property itself going up over time.
1: Yeah, very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Rachel Richards. Uh, She's also known as The Money Honey. Uh, Her uh, her website is actually moneyhoneyrachel.com, and we'll be back after this. The average human drinks 92 Coca-Cola products a year. The average American drinks 403. Over the next century, Coke grew into a multinational multi-billion-dollar corporation. So when Coca-Cola changed their recipe to what they called New Coke in 1985, the backlash was swift and severe. And the man who drove it, Chairman Robert Guarzega, pulled New Coke from the shelves in a matter of months. Wondery's Business Movers explores how the reformulated New Coke disrupted Coca-Cola's public perception. The story of New Coke is often seen as a classic case study for how not to launch a product and a cautionary tale of an out-of-touch executive who defied conventional wisdom and played a dangerous game with his company's signature product. The real story of New Coke is far more complex and more human. The story of Robert Guarzega's improbable rise and his controversial decision to change the recipe for Coke starts decades before the launch of New Coke, in the midst of a violent political revolution in Havana, Cuba. Uh, uh, Based on what you know, you should... uh, look into what New Coke is all about and uh, find out more about this and to learn as a wonderful thing uh, b- because in, in many cases people have never not heard this story before at all. So you should listen to the latest season of Business Movers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. That's W-O-N-D-E-R-Y. Wondery, feel the story.
3: Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the Internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life.
1: Welcome back to the Money Answer show. This is Jordan Goodman your host. My guest this hour is Rachel Richards, known as the Money Honey. Uh, her book, it's called Money Honey and there's another one called Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement, The Secret to Freedom, Flexibility and Financial Independence and How to Get Started. You can find out more at her website which is moneyhoneyrachel.com. Welcome back to the show, Rachel. Hey Jordan, thanks. Tell some people tell people what they can find at that com website.
2: Yeah, it's just a little bit about me. I list my books, my online course, and my mastermind. So, and then also I have some freebies on my website. So, if anyone wants to download my free budgeting worksheets, you can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com/free.
1: Okay, uh, that's worksheets. What is? Tell us a little bit about the course that you offer.
2: The course that I offer, it's called Get Your Financial Bleep Together. <laughs> so Your Bleep
1: it's a, it's, Together? Okay.
2: Yeah, it's fun and sassy. Um, it goes along with my first book, Money, Honey, and it's really about the basics of money management. My thought is the thing that sets apart people who achieve financial independence and who don't is really the ability to take action. Right, Because anyone can read a book, anyone can listen to a podcast, but are you implementing what you're learning? So I wanted to create an environment that would give people the support, accountability, and structure they needed to actually implement what they're learning and succeed. That's what the course is all about. It's an eight-week online course, and it's a lot of fun.
1: What are some of the um, uh, hurdles, I guess you might say, that people have to overcome In order to implement, they hear good advice, but they don't implement it. What are some of the hurdles that they need to get through that and actually implement good advice?
2: It's really about having self-discipline. Self-discipline is the hardest thing. And I like to make this analogy of when you go on a diet because you struggle with the same thing it's all about instant versus delayed gratification when you go on a diet you want to have that donut and it's delicious but that's not going to that's going to take you away from your long-term goals and it's the same thing with finance you want to spend money on something right now that maybe you don't need because it feels good but that actually detracts you from your distracts you from your long-term goals so if you can delay gratification and have that self-discipline That will make the difference between whether you achieve financial independence or not.
1: So one side of the equation is the passive income. We talked about rental real estate, but the other side is cutting your expenses. So why don't you go into some of the areas that you think people are spending too much and ways to cut back without penny-pinching too much or really hurting your lifestyle?
2: So food is the biggest thing, and Jordan and I struggle with this all the time, constantly. We spend so much on food. So the first thing I always tell people is you have to track your expenses. If you're just starting out, you don't know where to begin, you need to track your expenses. Anyone, no matter their age or their income, needs an expense tracker. Once you start seeing where your money is going, it will be very obvious where to cut back. So, for example, and I feel like I shouldn't admit this because I'm supposed to be a finance guru, but the first month my husband and I did this, we realized we were spending over $900 a month on groceries, And that is not even including restaurants that was groceries for two people so that was a huge wake up call for us i mean that's more than some people's mortgage payment and from there we were able to really cut back and pay attention to how much we were spending so that's the first step and there's this quote by dave ramsey that i love to share he said a budget is simply telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went
1: yes very good so how do you cut back on food i mean there's certain things uh, do you do generics? I mean, how do you cut back on your food budget?
2: There's a few things. I mean, there's easy things to do that are obvious that we just weren't doing. For example, digitally clipping coupons. So if you shop at Kroger or King Soopers or, or whatever the grocery store is, normally they have an app or a website and you can clip coupons you know, five minutes before you go into the store and then you're saving a few bucks each trip. Another thing is to bulk sale if you can, like if you can shop at a Costco and buy in bulk that normally saves money and just being a, paying attention to sales. If chicken breasts are on sale this week, you know, get get a few more packages than you normally would and put those in the freezer.
1: Okay, so food is one. What are some of the other big areas that you could cut back on legitimately?
2: A big area is online shopping, This is one that's become a lot more prominent in recent years with social media and Facebook ads and all these different things online and Amazon, you can buy something with a click of a button. So it's very tempting. One thing I tell people to do is a unsubscribe from all store emails right? So it's about removing the temptation from your inbox. You don't have to be alerted every time there's a store email. Now, I know someone listening is probably feeling FOMO, fear of missing out. And here's the thing, you can always re-sign up for those emails, but at least give yourself a break and see how you do. The second thing I recommend is implementing the 24-hour rule. So if there's something you really want to buy online and you're about to check out, just pause for a second and wait 24 hours. Make sure you sleep on it, because a lot of the time, having that time to reflect will help you really differentiate between needs versus wants.
1: So the impulse item is where people get into trouble.
2: Oh, yeah. All the time. And I do it, too.
1: (laughs) Okay. And then, okay, so we've got online shopping, we've got food. What are some of the other areas that people can cut back on legitimately?
2: Another big one is entertainment. So, and this hasn't been as big because of the pandemic. So people aren't going out and going to concerts or going to different events. So I think naturally people's budgets have been cut back a little bit in this area, but it's just having an intentional effort to do things for free, right? If you're getting together with your friends, can you go walk around at the park? Can you pack a picnic and go somewhere? Can you go on a hike outside can you have a date night at home where you make a meal at home and you light some candles? I mean, there's plenty that you can do for free. Um, so that's the third big area that I would say to cut back. But on uh, on the on a similar note, Jordan, one thing I realized when it comes to saving more money is that we have this tendency to focus on only decreasing our expenses. That's kind of our tendency. When I ask people in workshops, hey, what things do you do to save money more quickly? They'll normally say, oh, I'll eat out less, I'll cook at home, I'll stop online shopping. And all those answers are great. It's obviously very important to live within our means, but there's only so much you can do to decrease your expenses. You can't stop paying your car insurance or stop paying your mortgage or rent. So I always tell people, there's actually two ways to save more money. You can decrease your expenses and you can increase your income. The beautiful thing about increasing your income is that there's no cap on how much money you can make in a year. There's nothing stopping you from making more money. And best of all, you don't have to reduce your quality of life in order to do so. So if you really want to make an impact on your budget and with your savings, you will do both. Decrease your expenses and increase your income.
1: What are some lessons you've learned from the whole COVID situation, people staying at home, that you think will apply longer term even once uh, COVID is over?
2: So many lessons learned. First, I think everyone had a wake-up call in terms of feeling that they were not prepared financially for this. And of course, I mean, who was prepared financially? No one saw this coming. But I think we can use this as a learning opportunity to think to ourselves, hey, how was I prepared? Was I prepared enough? And if not, what can I do next time so that I can be better prepared for a recession? Because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Another eye-opening realization is that it is easier than you think to make money online and to, and I hate to say this word because it's overused, but to pivot your business. A lot of businesses that had physical storefronts have had to shift and learn how to do things online and offer their products online and offer their services online. Even people like personal trainers, which you think is a very in-person physical thing, Personal trainers are now finding ways to help their clients virtually. So I think it's promising. I mean, it's, it's encouraging to feel like you can sit in your home and you can find ways to make money if you're creative enough.
1: Yeah. So uh, what do you expect when this is over? Are things are going to go back to normal? Or how are things going to be changed permanently with what we, people have been through in the last year or so?
2: I really think it's going to be a mix. I see companies giving a lot more work remote flexibility in the long run. see a big shift in the way we approach retirement and this this has to do with the pandemic a little bit so the way we have traditionally approached retirement is we have found nine to five jobs we work 40 years and we save enough money so that by 65 we can live off of that for the rest of our life that is what i call the nest egg theory where you save a big nest egg to live off of in retirement This used to work really well. It really did. But the problem is times have changed, and the way we've approached retirement really hasn't changed at all. For example, the cost of college has ballooned, placing an enormous burden on our generation. Pensions are pretty much a thing of the past. And the most alarming thing is that the Social Security Trust Fund is projected to be fully depleted by the year 2035. So that is quite alarming for young people. I think what people are starting to realize is that this whole nest egg, working 40-hour-a-week job, it just doesn't work the way that it used to. And that's where this concept of passive income comes into play. Passive income is money that is earned with little to no ongoing effort. And I realize that once your passive income exceeds your living expenses, you're retired. You're financially independent. The way I saw it is that it's easier to come up with five or six or eight grand a month in passive income than it was to try to save a million or two by age 65 in order to retire. And I think one thing the pandemic has done is it's helped people realize that there are other ways to make money outside of your nine-to-five job. People are starting side hustles. People are learning about passive income. They're investing in real estate and writing books and offering courses. And I think we're going to see a lot more entrepreneurship like that in the the coming years.
1: So uh, you're officially retired at 28. So what do you do with your time now that you're retired to still have a Uh, meaningful life. Most people think that their life is based on what they work. How has that changed for you that you don't have to work?
2: Yes. Well, a lot of people actually say, well, Rachel, you're not retired. You're still working. <laughs> and <laughs> the thing is, yes, I am still working. I use the words retired and financially independent interchangeably. So it's not about me never working again. I would get way too bored and I'm way too young to, to not have an impact in the world. But now it's about working when, where, and if I want. And my book business and teaching female millennials and young people about financial literacy, that is truly what brings me passion. I love to help people this way. And that's how I spend most of my time
1: uh very good so you're saying other people could do the same kind of thing if they can create enough stream of passive income it gives them choices they don't have to uh go nine to five and work it's basically giving them choices is what you're saying
2: yeah absolutely and even if you don't want to quit your job it's still great to have an extra 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 dollars a month in passive income that can still give you a really big safety net and just just peace of mind knowing that you have that cushion there
1: So people today might be very skeptical of this. I mean, there's food lines and people have unemployment, they can't pay their rents, and there's just an awful lot of pain out there. How can you tell somebody in the current environment we're in now that what you've done is doable for them too?
2: I think it's doable. A lot of people ask if I'm a trust fund baby. The answer is no. And in fact, I never made six figures from a job or career ever in my life. I started off after I graduated college making only $36,000. Now, sure, as a young white woman, I've had privileges, absolutely, and I don't deny that. Um, But I do think that there are ways that anybody can make this work. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how much money you're making. You can create passive income.
1: Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Rachel Richards. She's known as The Money Honey. Uh, One of her books is called Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement. You can find out more at her website, moneyhoneyrachel.com. We'll be back after this. It's really important for people to get life insurance these days. Something can be very uh, (laughs) surprising when what's happened last year, almost 500,000 people have died that never expected to go through that. Uh, Kids do things all the time that are adorable and funny and wonderful but you may not be around there to, uh, to take advantage of it or, or enjoy it if you're not are careful. Also, people find that the rising cost of living, uh, buying a home and so on, can leave kids without any financial security if, if something happens to you. So it makes sense why people do get life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. Why not pay a little bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, consider Ladder. Ladder makes it impressively fast and easy to get covered. You just need a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you're approved. There are no hidden fees, and you can cancel at any time. And since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list because it's going to get more expensive later. So lock in your best rate today and get your family covered with Ladder go to ladderlife.com slash moneyanswers. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash moneyanswers. Ladderlife.com slash answers will help you get the best deals on life insurance.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Rachel Richards, also known as The Money Honey. Uh, her book is called Aggressive Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement. Uh, You can find out more at her website, moneyhoneyrachel.com. Welcome back to the show, Rachel.
2: Thank you, Jordan.
1: So let's talk about investing. We talked about rental real estate, but uh, portfolio income from buying stocks. Uh, How how do you do that? And specifically talk about it in the current environment where there's been so much money made and lost in these wild speculative swings and Robinhood stocks and shorting game stock and going after short sellers. Kind of give a little advice on what people should do and not do in this kind of environment we're in today.
2: Yeah. So there's, you're right. It's been crazy lately with GameStop and everything else that's been happening. And I think a lot of people get caught up in this, idea of making a bunch of money quickly by, you know, doing one of these speculative investments. But the way I see it is that it's actually a lot more glamorous and sexy to invest in something boring like index funds, because they will give you generally more stable returns over the long run. And I'm not no longer a licensed financial advisor. So none of this is to be taken as investment advice. But that's just how I approach things. I follow a few guidelines. I invest for the long run. I invest in very low-cost index funds and ETFs. I don't ever try to time the market. There's this quote that goes like, time in the market is better than timing the market. So I'm never trying to buy low, sell high. I'm just investing consistently. Those are some of my guidelines. I've had excellent returns ever since I started investing 10 years ago. So I'm going to stick with the very mundane, boring investment style because I think that's the safest way and the most stable way to invest in the long run.
1: So, how about uh, for investing for income? Uh, do you like real estate investment trusts? What kind of uh, strategies do you use to produce uh, current income?
2: Yeah, I do like REITs. Um, I haven't done a ton in portfolio income just because, with portfolio income, to generate meaningful revenue, you normally have to have a ton of money invested. You know, seven hundred fifty grand, one and a half million. Dollars, And that, that's a lot of money. So my long term strategy is to transfer away from some of my other passive income streams now that are gener- generating a lot of money and eventually transitioning into more portfolio income when I have that wealth accumulated. But for now, there are a few things that I enjoy investing in, like index fund, um, dividend yielding index funds where I can earn dividend income. REITs are great because it's a a way where you can sort of indirectly invest in real estate, but still get some of the advantages and returns of investing in real estate. So I love REITs. Um, I'm also invested in Fundrise, which is a crowdsourcing real estate platform. And I've earned on average about 9% from that over the past few years.
1: So on the REITs, do you like all REITs or are there some areas, some people would say like shopping centers would be uh, dangerous? Uh, but others yeah. do uh, what what specific kinds of reits do you like and not like in this environment
2: yeah this year has been very telling because a lot of businesses have had to shut their doors and so office buildings and shopping centers aren't the home run that they might used to have been um but something that i feel always will be strong is healthcare so you know things like hospital reits and reits that are in the healthcare industry i I personally don't see that going away anytime soon. So I think that's a pretty strong sector to invest in. And I just like my plain old residential multifamily sector as well.
1: So what's the advantage of doing a REIT over owning physical property yourself or doing syndications?
2: If you're after mailbox money, then a REIT is a great fit for you because you're not having to deal with the hassle of being a landlord and dealing with tenants and dealing with maintenance and repairs. You're essentially investing in a corporation that owns real estate and you're acting as an investor, and they're they're passing the profits back to you as a, as a dr- distribution, essentially. So you get to invest your money, you don't have to do any of the hard work, and you make money as a return. Now, the, the downside is that you're not going to make as much generally as if you were to invest directly into rental property on your own. It's always a time versus money trade-off, so you just need to figure out which one's more important to you.
1: So talk about Fundrise a little bit. So how do you pick, cause I think you can offer, they offer different pro- projects. How do you pick which one is attractive to you?
2: Yeah, Fundrise is really cool. I put money in it sort of as an experiment at first to see how it would do. And I chose their income portfolio. So I think there's different ways you can invest, but I chose whatever was going to start giving me income. Um, With Fundrise, there's a few things you need to be aware of. First of all, it's very illiquid. If you ever want to sell your Fundrise shares, these are privately traded shares. These aren't publicly traded on the stock market, so it can take a couple months to actually get your money out. Another thing is is that if you don't keep it there for five years, you have to pay a penalty if you do want to withdraw your money. So this is meant to be used as a long-term investment, you know, money that you're not going to need for the next five years. The way it works for me is that I'm invested in the income portfolio, so I own a small little percent of ownership in all these different complexes all over the country. I get a quarterly distribution, and so far my return has been about 9% since I started.
1: Very good. Now, some other sources of income for you are uh, publishing, both your books and blogs and your course. Who is appropriate to to get into the kind of self-publishing business as a way to make a significant amount of money?
2: When you're starting to look at passive income, the first thing you want to ask yourself is, do I have more time or more money to invest in creating this passive income stream? Because you will need one or the other or both. Now, if you're anything like I used to be a few years ago, you would have said, I have neither. I don't have time or money. So the next question to ask yourself is which one is going to be easier for you to free up? Will it be easier for you to free up time or to create more money? Once you can figure that out, you can start to narrow down the different types of passive income streams. For example, royalty-based income streams generally require more time rather than money up front. A royalty-based income stream is something like writing a book or creating an online course. So it's something that you do have to put a lot of work into creating, but then once it's launched, it becomes very hands-off. And often there's not a a significant capital investment. So for Money Honey, I self-published Money Honey in 2017 for under $600. It was a very low investment. Um, my, My online course that I launched in 2020, I think I spent... One, I mean, maybe $1,000 up front to get that created. So both of those were very low capital investments, but they did require a lot of time. So that's the first thing. If, if somebody doesn't have a lot of money, but they have a lot of time, this could be a great option for them. The second thing with royalty income, though, is that it's very dependent on marketing. Somebody can go out and write the world's best ever written book But if they don't know how to market it and get it into people's hands, they're never going to make money from it. So this income stream is very dependent on marketing. And if you're not comfortable with that or not willing to do that, it will be hard to generate money from this income stream.
1: So that's uh, books. How about uh, podcasts and other ways of promoting things? Again, this is not for everybody, but for certain people it can work. But it's, it's not a universal solution for passive income.
2: Right. For certain people, it'll work. I use podcasts, and there's nothing passive about podcasts, certainly, but the way I look at my royalties and my courses is that the hard work's been done, they're created and they're launched, and now I just have to spend a couple hours a week or a few hours per month marketing them. Now some people would say, well that's not passive if you're still having to work. But the way I see it is that compared to a, you know, a 9 to 5 job, it's, it's very much passive to me. So there's always a sliding scale of how passive something is. With podcasts, I, I try to do a few per month just so that I can continue to get in front of new audiences. That's the hard thing about writing a book or launching a course is once you once you sell to your initial circle and your network and your family and friends, how are you can, c- going to continue to get in front of new audiences and new readers? Podcasts are a great way to cross-promote yourself.
1: Yeah. You talk about some other sources of passive income. You have a section on coin-operated machines. Uh, so you're talking about vending machines. What are the pros and cons of doing coin-operated machines?
2: I think coin-operated machines are just so unique and fun and interesting. And I, I don't have coin-operated machines myself. My husband and I came close to investing in them, but then we kind of switched gears. But this would be something like a vending machine or an ATM or you know, an arcade game or a laundromat. Um And even if you don't have the capital to invest in a laundromat, because that's really expensive, you could still buy a coin-operated washer and dryer and then work with a local landlord to put those in his complexes. So really, there's a few things going on here. You have to find the machines. Better to find a used machine than a new machine. You have to find the locations, which can normally mean going out on foot, knocking on doors, seeing who would be willing to work with you and allow you to put your machine in their location. And then it becomes really passive once you have that set up. So you would just essentially go around once a week to collect the money and restock the machines. And even that part can be outsourced to make it even more passive.
1: Yeah. I mean, so you think it's better to put new machines in in new places as opposed to buying existing machines that already uh, have somewhat of a track record?
2: It depends. So you can buy a route. You can buy an already established business an already established route from a current owner who's looking to sell this business. And certainly, I think that would be easier to do. Or you can start buying your own used machines and setting up your own new route. It is hard to get to find a location, so it can be easier to, to work with somebody that already has locations in place.
1: Yeah, you also talk about coin ops as a way of passive income. What are some examples of that?
2: The, the, like the vending machines?
1: But you talk about coin ops, things like car washes and other...
2: Oh, like bigger. Yeah, bigger. So instead of an individual coin-operated machine, like a vending machine or a washer machine, this is where you'd look at a business that operates this way as a whole. So something yes. like a car wash or a laundromat. And certainly this can bring in big bucks immediately, but it's a little more similar to portfolio income where it does require a very large capital investment.
1: Very good. We're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answers Show. My guest this hour is Rachel Richards. She's known as The Money Honey. Uh, Her book is called Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement, The Secret to Freedom, Flexibility, and Financial Independence. You can find out more about her at her website, moneyhoneyrachel.com. We'll be back after this.
4: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
5: You've been
0: listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Rachel Richards. Her book is called Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement. You can find out more about what she does at moneyhoneyrachel.com. Welcome back to the show, Rachel. Thanks, Jordan. So let's talk about some of the mindset issues that makes an entrepreneur successful or not successful. So for example, uh, what are some of the daily habits and rituals that you use to cultivate a healthy mindset?
2: Yeah, the thing is when you're creating passive income, you are becoming an entrepreneur. There's really no way around that. And being an entrepreneur is really, really hard. Some of the things that I do on a daily basis is just to have a really good morning routine. Now, this isn't something I've consistently done over time, but I do go back to it when I feel like I'm struggling or I'm really getting burnt out. So a book that I recommend is called The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. It certainly changed my life because when you think about the way most of us wake up in the morning, we wake up and we turn over to our phone and we we start looking through our phone. At least that's what I've normally done. <laughs> but if you think about how you can start your day intentionally and with positivity, you can really change how your entire day goes. And you can have a ton of really good days in a row. So things that I do in the morning that Hal Elrod discusses in his book include meditation, affirmations, journaling, you know, doing gratitude exercises, reading, um, just having silence, listening to music. Just things that aren't anything to do with work. They're not social media, they're not checking email, they're not looking at my notifications, but they really get me grounded and centered so that I'm starting my day in a positive way.
1: Now, some people say, as an entrepreneur, you're always going to face burnout, because you don't have a boss, you're kind of on your own. Have you ever faced burnout, and how do you deal with it?
2: Oh my gosh, yes. So, uh, when I quit my job in 2019... I had this fear that I was going to be this lazy sloth and I was going to sleep all day and not do anything. (laughs) But I guess I didn't know myself very well because the opposite happened. And I went from working 40-hour weeks as an employee to working 80-hour weeks as an entrepreneur. What I realized is that it is hard to have boundaries as an entrepreneur, it's hard when you're not going physically going into an office and leaving an office every day. There's no clear start or stop time to your day. And on top of that, I loved I love what I do. So to me, I could work a 12-hour day, and I would be totally happy and fulfilled. It didn't feel like work. The problem with working 12-hour days, though, is that it's not sustainable. So this definitely got me into trouble. It led into burnout, which actually then led into anxiety and depression, which I've always talked very publicly about because I think there's a lot of unfortunate stigmas against mental health. But, you know, I think every entrepreneur needs to watch out for this and really be protective of their time and make sure you're taking care of yourself.
1: What is a common piece of advice that is given to entrepreneurs that you disagree with?
2: I have a couple of these, but one is... People often tell entrepreneurs to say yes to every opportunity that comes their way. And I agree with this to an extent. When you are starting a business and you're out there, you need to hustle and you need to get yourself out there. And certainly you want to say yes to every opportunity that comes your way when you're starting out. The problem though, is that if you keep following this advice as your business grows, you're going to find yourself in a lot of trouble. All of a sudden, your calendar is going to fill up with everyone else's priorities except for your own. And what happened to me, this was a problem for me, and this is why I I ended up having a lot of anxiety, but I just felt like I didn't have any control over my schedule or my calendar. I didn't have any say in my day. It was really, really difficult. So I've actually learned that instead of saying yes, actually saying no is a lot more powerful as a business owner. And if you can learn to in intentionally understand when to say yes versus no, that is a lot, that's a better strategy for your business.
1: So people going through school in general are being taught to be employees, go out and get a job. Um, what is the different mindset? Say you're coming out of school to go straight into becoming an entrepreneur where you're on your, your own boss. What is the different mindset for that for, as opposed to being an employee?
2: Yeah, and I, and it, I don't think being an employee is bad. I think everyone needs to make that decision for themselves because some people love working for a company. They love the stability. They love the paycheck. And that is amazing. And some people want to be their own boss and start a business and be an entrepreneur. And that is also amazing. So I think just knowing which one you are is helpful to start out. There's a huge difference in the mindset when you're an employee you are not necessarily taking as much initiative as your own. You certainly can take initiative on projects within your company, but at the end of the day, you're not necessarily owning anything that you do, right? So at the end of the day, it's the CEO and the CFO and all those people that are at the top that are being rewarded or that are suffering the consequences. And you're just a kind of a part of their system. So there's a difference in the the accountability. When you're an entrepreneur... At the end of the day, you own what happens with your business. If you're not doing the work that needs to be done, you're either going to lose money or you're going to lose customers. So at the end of the day, you can only point to yourself to see, am I being a successful business owner or not? A lot of people struggle with being an entrepreneur because it's hard to have the work ethic and to hold yourself accountable. When you're working for somebody else, they're giving you assignments, they're giving you deadlines, and you you just kind of have to do as you're told, and you know that you're going to get in trouble if you don't if you're an entrepreneur, things can slide. Maybe you're not you're not doing the things you're supposed to be doing. And at the end of the day, you look at yourself in the mirror and it's it's up to you to decide whether you're going to do, do those things or not. So I think it's just a really big difference in the mindset and the accountability.
1: You deal a lot with the issue of women, particularly, and they're dealing with money and, and young women particularly. What challenges do they face that are different than what men uh, typically face and their attitudes towards money?
2: Yeah, so here's the thing with finance I'm with women. We are in a financial education crisis. At no point in our lives are we taught how to manage our money, and then we're left as young adults to figure it out all on our own. Now, what I've seen with women, and it's, it's not limited to women. It's certainly not. I just, I'm a woman myself, so this is what I've experienced. I've seen that women tend to feel these feelings of guilt and shame and embarrassment when it comes to their money which is so unfortunate and it breaks my heart because it's not their fault that they weren't given the resources they need to succeed. But I do feel there's this deeper level of emotion and feeling not good enough that women tend to feel. So I find that troublesome. That's why I'm so passionate about what I do. And I just want to empower women and give them the tools they need so that they can feel confident and they can feel like, you know, this isn't as hard as I thought. I can do this on my own. That's, that's why I do what I do.
1: So are there steps being taken to do financial education at both uh, K through 12 and college that are improving the situation?
2: I have seen programs here and there. I feel like there was a program announced in South or North Carolina f- about f- in a high school but there is not enough. I mean, there needs to be an overhaul of the educational system where they're not only teaching theoretical, but they're teaching practical. And not just personal finance, but things like how does healthcare work? How does car maintenance work? How does all these different practical things work? Because that's what we need as young adults so that we can succeed in, in real life.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, in summing up, kind of what difference will it make in people's life to follow the advice you've given, both on increasing their uh, income through passive sources and uh, cutting their expenses in the ways we've discussed?
2: Well, first of all, if you follow me, I think that it will be a breath of fresh air compared to you know a different finance book or a different finance guru that's speaking in very dull, jargon-filled, complex words. So I try to make the whole topic sassy and fun and simple, and that makes it a lot more accessible to people. And then also, if you start to implement my strategies, I do think that you can achieve financial independence at a young age. Right, so other finance gurus will tell you things like, oh, invest in mutual funds and save 15% of your paycheck and don't take on any debt. And some of those things have a place but I will say things like, you need to save 50% of your, of your income, and you need to find ways to increase your income so that you can do so, and you need to invest in index funds, and you need to p- think about taking out debt to purchase rental property so that you can use that as leverage to purchase a cash-flowing asset. So I think I just have a different perspective than what a traditional finance guru would say, and I think that a lot of my techniques can get someone to achieve financial independence a lot and a lot earlier.
1: And particularly in the times we're in now, uh, with so many people having been closed in by COVID and so many people having lost their jobs and died and ending up in food service lines, uh, you have a much more optimistic view than a lot of people who are kind of barely into survival mode these days.
2: Yeah, and it's hard times. I mean, it's easy to feel very discouraged and panicked. But at the end of the day, you know, all you can do is just take a deep breath, confront your finances. That's the hardest part, is just is looking at your financial situation, putting it all out there on the table. What are your debts? What's your income? How much are you spending? What are your assets? If you can get over that first hurdle, I promise you it will feel like a relief. It'll feel like a relief just to know, okay, it might not be pretty, but this is what my financial situation looks like. And now I can take the steps to further myself and work my way towards financial freedom.
1: Very good. Well, my guest this hour has been Rachel Richards. Uh, her book is called Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement, The Secret to Freedom, Flexibility, and Financial Independence on How to Get Started. You can find out more about what she offers, her course, and other things at her website, moneyhoneyrachel.com. Thanks so much for being a great guest on The Money Answer Show, Rachel. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now.